Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kieran McGee, and in this episode, we go back to 1908, the 12th year of the BFL, where the competition welcomed two new expansion clubs, Richmond and University, creating a 10-team league. Carlton were looking to become the first club to complete a hat-trick of premierships. St Kilda and South Melbourne would try to maintain their improved form, and the remaining clubs wanted to make their mark on the expanded league. 1908 was a big year in sport internationally, and locally. London hosted the fourth modern Summer Olympics. The Games took six months to compete, a bit different to the three weeks we are familiar with today. Australia won one gold medal when the Wallabies rugby union team, already on tour in the UK in 1908, beat Britain, represented by the Cornwall rugby team. In other sporting highlights of the year, Melbourne would host the Australian football's 50th Anniversary Jubilee Carnival in Melbourne. More about that later. In Sydney, where the VFL would tell us that the Australian game was thriving, the big news was the establishment of a professional rugby league competition, breaking away from the amateur rugby union. One key factor in the emergence of rugby league was the demand by working class players for payment to recognise the commitment they made to the game and the need for financial assistance when recovering from injuries. Rugby Union wanted to maintain the amateur approach, which was easier if you had a profession or a career that provided enough income to support your recreational activities. Rugby League clubs also had access to enclosed grounds that allowed those clubs to charge admission, which also helped build a successful professional competition. Australian Rules Clubs in Sydney did not have the advantage of enclosed grounds. Not the only reason why Rugby League would dominate in Sydney but an important factor. Also, in 1908, Melbourne was visited by the United States Great White Fleet in August and September. 16 battleships and four destroyers, all painted white, carrying 14,000 sailors and marines. They would capture the public's imagination. When the sailors completed a 10-kilometre march from Port Melbourne to the Royal Exhibition Buildings, the crowd was even bigger than the 1901 inauguration of the Commonwealth. Many events and activities were held for the visiting fleet, with sailors travelling to the country and country Victorians going to Port Melbourne to see the fleet. Not all events went to plan. The failure of an American officer to pass on an invitation for one event meant that only seven sailors turned up to a reception and a dinner at the exhibition buildings where catering had been laid on for 2,800. Getting our focus back on football, in January, The Age published news of an international football carnival to be played at the MCG in August to celebrate the 50th year of the Australian game. Or, as some might say, an interstate carnival with New Zealand playing too. The Queensland Football League was so excited about the Australian game, they had composed their own song. I'll include a copy on the website. I was hoping that it might have been included in the pre-game entertainment at the Gabba for 2020's unique Queensland-based AFL Grand Final. But maybe the chorus of Cooey, cooey, cooey. Made it a little bit too old-fashioned for the modern TV audience. Richmond and University meant that the VFL was now a 10-team competition, causing a change to the structure of the season. There would be 18 home and away rounds, with the top four teams competing in semi-finals and then the final. The challenge option was to be retained for the team that achieved the minor premiership at the end of the home and away season but there would not be any need for sectional rounds, as seen in previous seasons. 
After several seasons where professionalism had been debated in the press, the February League delegates meeting saw a proposal from Ern Copeland of Collingwood that any player receiving payment must be registered as a professional or be subject to disqualification. Mr Con Hickey, who was the chairman of the meeting, said, If the game is to be turned into a professional one, I'm out of it. Mr Copeland said, So am I, but something needs to be done. He clearly recognised that faux amateurism was going to cause more damage than open professionalism. But given the hours late, no decision was made on the issue at that meeting. The proposal was picked up at the following week, and there was much discussion with some interesting comments. While player payments were against the rules, Mr Tom Fogarty, a new delegate from the University Club, made the obvious point that, quote, you all think it exists, unquote, which was met by laughter. Perhaps nervous laughter? Then Mr Wilson of Essendon effectively admitted that they had play payers in the past when they were on top, saying, I admit to what happened in the years we were on top. We want the game to be cleansed of men being allowed to run the club. Charles Brownlow of Geelong made an amendment to the proposal, allowing the league to demand that any club or player to furnish a statutory declaration that players had not been paid. This was opposed by several delegates. In the end, the vote for the amendment calling for statutory declarations was 9-4 and 6 against, but lost because it did not receive the three-quarters of majority, that is, 12 votes. The season itself opened on Saturday, May 2, with Carlton unfurling their premiership flag, again in front of the visiting St Kilda team. This year, despite the Saints being coached by Mick Grace, having switched from the Blues, Carlton won the opening game of their season comfortably. Richmond established a record that can never be improved on by becoming the first expansion team to win a game in the VFL by defeating Melbourne on the Punt Road Oval. In years to come, other expansion teams may have also won their first game, but they were just following Richmond's lead. The following week, in Round 2, University got their first win of the season and their VFL career when they beat Richmond. University were playing their home games at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground, sharing it with Essendon. In round three, Carlton played Essendon and selected a new player for the game. Wally Kuchu would only play four games, but has the honour to be the first player of Chinese heritage to play in the VFL. This was a provocation to some supporters. After Wally was selected for his second game, a Carlton member wrote to the Carlton committee expressing his outrage that selecting a Chinaman was dealing a death blow to the white Australia policy. In this instance, the club backed the player and refunded the membership of the upset supporter. As has been seen in many instances, football can be both a bridge to welcoming different cultures and a focus for resentment and bigotry. While Carlton supported Wally Koo Chu on this occasion, it is fair to say the White Australia policy also proved resilient, lasting up until the 1970s. The fourth round game between St Kilda and University saw controversy break out as gambling reared its ugly head again. Despite their good season in 1907, the Saints had lost their first two opening games, but looked to be back on track when they gave South Melbourne their first defeat for the season. But then, in round four, the Saints lost to University. Initial reports congratulated the students on the unexpected win. The Age did point out that the Saints were hopeless in the third quarter when University put on five goals without the Saints scoring. University players were praised, 
and the St Kilda players were scorned for their poor performance. But on the Friday after the game, the scandal broke in the Argus. It was reported that prominent supporters were paying selected players honorariums, or cash payments that were not official and not paid by the club, of course. Because the players were all amateurs, of course. But some players were not happy that their honorariums were less than others, and this created dissension and a lack of cohesion. Given the team's form reversal from the win against South to a loss against a newly admitted university, the club committee did some investigations. It was stated that one committee member had won 30 to 40 pounds on the match against South Melbourne, and that at half time, two of the leading Saints players had come to him asking for two pounds if the team won. The committee man refused, fearing similar approaches by other players eating up all his winnings. The same committee man then placed a bet for St Kilda to win at odds of 5-2 against University, but the Saints lost. It was then further alleged that another committee member boasted in the dressing rooms after the game that he had won £23 on the game and some players of the team would do for him what he required. A St Kilda committee met on the Thursday from 8pm to midnight. Serious accusations were made against several players. The Argus called on the league to investigate the situation. Kikaro from the Herald interviewed one of the committee members who claimed it was all rumour and exaggeration and there was nothing said about players being squared off. The league did end up investigating the matter, following up an inquiry by the St Kilda Football Club Committee. Despite what was written in the article in the Argus, it was found to be a matter of jokes being made and denials of any wrongdoing and no indication of any players being squared off. The league found no such wagering took place and the honour of the St Kilda players was unwarrantably impeached. Maybe there was nothing in it, but such a specific set of allegations could make some people think there was no smoke without fire. Gambling on football matches was seen as a problem in the early years of the game and it is still a challenge for today's players and administrators. The season proceeded through to round 17, where there was a break for the Jubilee Football Carnival between all states in New Zealand to be held in Melbourne. At this break in the season, Carlton were well on top of the ladder, having just lost one game to Essendon, who were second, St Kilda and South made up the top four, but Collingwood were making a late run. University had made an encouraging start to their league career, and, for those of us who know little about university, other than they lost a lot of games and then disappeared from the league at some point, we'd be surprised to see they had won eight games for their first season, two ahead of Richmond. The Jubilee Carnival was opened at the MCG on Wednesday 19th of August. The New Zealand team performed a Maori war cry with great zest, and there was an equally stirring Aboriginal war cry from the Queensland team something that is perhaps echoed in the modern dream time at the G Games, where Richmond and Essendon play at the MCG. All of the Jubilee Games were held at the MCG, and Victoria, playing in blue jumpers with the big V, were the eventual championship team. On a side note, those who complain about today's game being too congested and the pressing need to update the rules to open the game up might not realise how long this battle has been going on. Old Boy in the Argus reported that at a meeting of the Australasian Football Council held during the Football Jubilee, a decision to deal with the unseemly jostling and scrambling which takes place when the umpire bounces the ball at the centre of the ground. A six-foot circle was to be marked on the turf, which no player is allowed to enter 
until the ball is bounced. The centre circle would come into effect in season 1909 and eventually be joined by the centre square and more recently the 666 rule. One day a rule change will finally fix the problem of congestion. The completion of the Jubilee Carnival left one game to go in the home and away season before the semi-finals. Carlton was safely on top and would have the comfort of the right to challenge rule if they needed it. Collingwood had not been in the four all season but on a rainy day they were far too strong for a fading South Melbourne who were thrashed and dropped out of finals contention. Some commentators thought St Kilda had been planning on South beating Collingwood but the Seasiders did not want to finish third which would have meant a second semi-final against the all-powerful Carlton. So the Saints somehow managed to lose the last game of the season to Richmond and were attacked for taking a dive. Perhaps tanking has a long history in football. Although to be fair, some of the reports also gave credit to Richmond for playing a good game. So Essendon would play Collingwood in the first semi-final and Carlton would play St Kilda, despite their alleged efforts to avoid this clash, in the second semi-final a week later. There was a little drama as the league match committee met on the Saturday night after the final round of games had been played. The Essendon delegate and Jack Worrell from Carlton both pointed out that the Melbourne Cricket Club had hired the MCG out to the VFA the previous Monday. The grounds should be taught to respect those who give them their revenue. Jack Worrell said he believed sticking to those who stuck with them. Tensions between the VFL and the MCC over the use of the MCG would be an ongoing challenge. But at this point, the committee did not think it was the right time to deal with the issue. Essendon and Collingwood had played each other twice in the new format, home and away fixture. Both teams had a wind at their home grounds, but this would be the decider on the neutral MCG. Essendon were favoured, but Collingwood had won four out of their last five games and had claims to being in good form. Those of us who enjoy riding our bikes to the football would have enjoyed the facilities made available to cyclists at the MCG for the semi-final. As described in the age in the morning of the game, complete arrangements have been made for the stabling of bicycles in the Melbourne Cricket Ground during the football finals. Safety checks are given and the bicycles placed in a locked enclosure. Nowadays we chain our bikes up to a rack and hope for the best. That's progress I guess. The Argus seems to be responsible for an innovation that we take for granted now. In their Saturday morning edition, they printed the teams out, in position, surrounded by an oval representing the ground. No numbers as yet, as these had not yet appeared on jumpers, but an aid to supporters wanting to see who was playing where. At this time, the convention was for the club to name the goal they were defending, so Collingwood's full forward, Dick Lee, was shown in front of Essendon's goal. The first semi-final was played on the 12th of September on a mild 22 degrees day, with about 29,000 people attending, the rain holding off until after the game was finished. Essendon started off by playing the better football, but really were not able to make a big impression on the scoreboard. At quarter time, it was Essendon by one point, two goals two to two goals one. Essendon was stronger in the second quarter, but inaccurate kicking was keeping Collingwood in the game. The half-time score was Essendon three goals seven to Collingwood three goals two. During the third quarter, Collingwood's Francis Wiltshire, who was playing a rattling game, got his legs tangled up with an Essendon player and was carried off injured, leaving Collingwood a man down against Essendon, who was starting to hit their stride. Wiltshire returned in the fourth quarter with his legs bandaged up, 
but could not move much and was of little use to his team. Essendon was showing effective handball and clean kicking, whereas Collingwood were constantly under pressure with the ball in their back line. The third quarter saw Essendon move to 5 goals 11 to Collingwood, unable to score at all in the third quarter, still on 3 goals 2. A tiring Collingwood simply had to play out time against a visibly superior Essendon. If Collingwood did look like getting the ball forward, the same old Bill Griffith, who was having a superb game of defence, just sent it back from whence it came. The goals were coming easily for Essendon, and when Collingwood scored a couple of their own, it mattered little. Their season was over. The rush to the finals had seen them play one more game, but that was it. Essendon would be taking on the winner of the second semi-final. The score at the end was Essendon 9 goals 14, beating Collingwood by 35 points, 5 goals 3, 33. This was a triumph for Essendon. They had been the Wooden Spooners, finishing last on the ladder in 1907, and now they had the right to play off for the Premiership, a rare achievement in any season. Sadly for spectators, the rain bucketed down as they were leaving the ground. Cabs and trams were not sufficient for the deluge. The second semi-final was on the 19th of September, between warm favourites Carlton, who had only lost one game all year, and St Kilda, who had reached third, but only won ten games for the season. Carlton may have been more concerned with their landlords at Princes Park, the Carlton Cricket Club, who wanted to top-dress the cricket pitch, which would make the 25-yard square at the centre of the ground unavailable for training, in the lead-up to the grand final. Jack Worrell said this would be dealt with on Monday night when the Carlton committee met, and Jack was a man who usually got his way. The Blues were missing one of their stars with Frank Silver Kane, who was quite ill, but they had once again put the call out to their former captain, Jim Flynn, who, just like in 1907, had returned from running his hotel in St James, about 240 kilometres north of Melbourne, to play in the finals. It was a blustery, rainy day with 25,500 people at the MCG. Question to be resolved. Would Carlton's 1908 procession continue? Or would St Kilda manage the upset of the season and force the Blues to use their challenge option? The Saints had the wind in the first quarter, but from the bounce, things started going Carlton's way. An early free kick to Mally Johnson saw the ball kick to Rod McGregor, and a moment later, Jack Gardner used a drop kick to score the Blues' first goal within a minute of the starting bell. Saints supporters might have been getting a bit nervous when the ball came directly into the Blues forward line and Jack Gardner was awarded a free kick for a push in the back. His shot at goal was true and the Saints were two goals down and they'd hardly touched the ball. The Seasiders repelled the next forward push, but while they may have had the wind, the Blues had the tide of the game. George Topping kicked to Jack Gardner who marked and, this time, using a place kick, scored his and Carlton's third goal of the quarter. The rain came down heavily, umbrellas went up, and the players struggled with a slippery ball on a wet ground. George Malley Johnson had a shot at goal, but given the conditions, the ball fell short, only to be scooped up by Jack Garner, who put the ball in his left boot, for the fourth goal. The quarter-time break saw Carlton on four goals one to the Saints, three behinds. The second quarter saw hail falling and water lying on the ground. The game developed into a scrum, with most of the players following the ball around the ground. Despite the trying conditions, Carlton stamped, or perhaps splashed, their authority on the game by scoring another four goals while St Kilda could only manage one point. The half-time bell went, and the players rushed for the dressing rooms. 
those nearest the fence simply jumping over rather than trying to reach the gate. Many spectators, conceding that the game was over, headed for the exits, leaving a much smaller crowd to watch the second half. The players and the umpires, though, had to come back out to the second half, with the umpires looking bright and white in a change of clothes. The second half, though, did not see any improvement for St Kilda or the quality of football. The rain continued, the balls kicked off the ground, skills mattered less than determination, and St Kilda gave away more frees than they got because they were frustrated and playing behind their opponents. Observer, writing in the Argus, said it was the worst conditions he had seen for a game of football since 1891. Carlton played the second half with 17 men because Martin Gotts did not come out after the long break, suffering from catarrh, an inflammation of the airways, undoubtedly made worse by the terrible weather. But this did not make any difference to the result. Neither team could score a goal on the third quarter, and while conditions improved as the rain stopped in the last quarter, and St Kilda managed their first three goals of the game, the Blues actually went further ahead by kicking four goals. The final scores in an unattractive game were Carlton 12 goals 12, 84, to the Saints 3 goals 8, 26. St Kilda did make a point of giving an official notice that they would report umpire Coombs for unfair umpiring, but there was no indication that the umpiring affected the result of the game. The final would be between Essendon and Carlton on September 26. For Essendon to become the Premiers, they would have to defeat Carlton twice because the Blues had the all-important right of challenge, having topped the ladder during the home and away season. Although Essendon had beaten Carlton during the season, the Blues were warm favourites as that loss to Essendon was their only loss for the entire season. Carlton had also beaten the same olds in Round 3 earlier in the season to make it one all. The umpire for this game was Jack Elder who would go on to be named the VFL-AFL's Umpire of the Century. This was just the first of many grand finals he would take charge. His umpiring philosophy was quoted in the Sporting Globe more than a decade after his requirement. Quote, Even in the hardest fought match, it is important to remain calm. Use the whistle only when required. League football is not a genteel sport for schoolgirls, and the term rough is often misapplied. That borderline between manly vigour and roughhouse tactics is sometimes a little vague. The term rough football should, I think, be used sparingly. Hard play differs from the sly bump, the kicks of the ankles, the trips and the knees jolted in the backs that constitute rough and illegal play. While Jack Elder's umpiring philosophy may still stand up today, he might be surprised at the number of schoolgirls who are taking up the game. Essendon's captain was Billy Griffith who started playing Essendon in 1899 as a 16-year-old and would retire in 1913 after 187 games, which stood as a record for 30 years at Essendon, not passed until Dick Reynolds in 1944. Billy Griffith represented the state twice in 1901 and 1902. Beginning his career as a rover, he later settled as fullback. He had sought a clearance to Carlton in 1905, which was refused, and then took up the captaincy of Essendon in 1907, a year before leading the team into the grand final. Carlton would once again be led by Fred Pompey Elliott. Entrance was once again a shilling to get in and an extra shilling for the grandstand. Essendon and Carlton members could gain entry with their members ticket. MCC members were advised they had to enter via the members stand. All supporters were advised to get to the ground early to avoid the crush 
to have the correct money because no change would be given at the turnstiles and to steer clear of fraudsters selling tickets in the surrounds of the MCG because false tickets from an undesirable class would not get you into the ground. The curtain raiser this year was once again a schoolboys game between Sydney and Melbourne, though this year it would be a combined Sydney team rather than a single school versus a combined Melbourne schoolboys team. They would kick off at 1.30 before the main game at 3pm. The Victorian boys won the game easily, 5 goals 10, to New South Wales 1 goal 2. Essendon had made four changes to their semi-final team to strengthen the forward line and to deal with the loss of Lou Armstrong, a brilliant rover who injured his heel training in the lead-up to the big game. Now I think most of us would assume that a team making four changes before a grand final would be bringing in some experienced players who would have a background in playing big games. However, Essendon's changes included bringing in Jack Harry Prout, a former Wesley College captain who played for Collegians in 1908 to be the first player to make his VFL debut in the grand final, and 19-year-old Bill Heafy from Tatura for his second game for the season, after having played in the win against Geelong in round 18. The Herald did report that Heafy was said to have made a hobby of collecting goals, but surely it was a big ask to come into the grand final. While playing in the final of the season would have been a highlight for both young men, both had trouble after their VFL careers. In 1911, Jack Prout was involved in a murder trial with four other men after one of them had bashed a fellow railway worker to death. Jack was acquitted, although it seems to have been a narrow escape. He did continue playing football in New South Wales. Bill Heapy had serious health issues related to his heart. In 1914, only six years after playing in the grand final, he seems to have had a heart seizure after mistakenly taking poison rather than his heart medication. The coroner returned a verdict of accidental death. Other players joining the team were Albert Dakin, a first-year player with six games under his belt, and Arthur Legg, who at least had been playing since 1904. Carlton would use the same 18 that had taken care of St Kilda in the semi-final, Martin Gotts having recovered from his Qatar, and the forecast was for a much improved day compared to the rain-drenched semi-final. While coverage of the VFL in the newspapers had not reached the saturation level of modern media, 1908 had seen some innovations. As well as the Argus starting to print out the team in playing positions, the eve of the grand final saw both teams listed out, showing occupation, height and weight. I thought it would be interesting to compare the average 1908 player versus the 2020 equivalent. So, choosing Richmond as the example of the 2020 team, here are the three teams compared. I have converted the 1908 imperial measures to metric to simplify the comparison. The 1908 Carlton team's average height was 176 centimetres. Essendon was 173 versus Richmond in 2020 at 186 centimetres, 13 centimetres on average taller than the Essendon team. The weight comparisons are less dramatic. From 1908, Carlton's average weight was 76 kilograms, Essendon was 74 kilograms, and the 2020 Richmond team's average weight is 78 kilograms. Clearly, the players of 1908 were shorter and stockier than today's breed. The tallest player on the field in the 1908 final was Carlton's Jim Marchbank. Described as a raw bone ruckman, he stood a respectable 6 foot 2, or 188 centimetres in the modern measure. He might have struggled, though, against someone like Ivan Soldo at 204 centimetres. 
Better diets and lifestyles have seen significant increases in height since the early years of the 20th century. The modern player is a full-time professional and would not be doing jobs such as slater, fish curer, cyanide worker, hide salesman or miner. But those of us old enough to remember the semi-professional days of the late VFL and early AFL would be pleased to see that even in 1908 there were several licensed victuallers an old term for the licensed grocer shop that many VFL players used to complement their playing career. As in previous years, there were the usual trains bringing in country spectators to the game and local supporters were flocking to the ground too. It was a mild day with the maximum temperature of 18 degrees, just right for playing and watching the big game. Carlton were the favourites and Essendon would have to win this game and the following week if they were to be premiers in 1908. Frank Silver Kane was still recovering from his illness that had kept him out for much of the season, but he was in the Blues dressing room before the game to wish his teammates well. Essendon had to make a last-minute change when Mike Longoran's father died the night before the game. His replacement was Mark Shea, who played on the halfback flank. The Essendon team wore black armbands as a mark of respect for their teammate. There was more than 50,000 people at the MCG a record attendance representing nearly 9.5% of Melbourne's total population. While many were on roofs and trees surrounding the ground, most spectators had a good view in this large ground. However, follower in the age was not happy about the conditions for the press. Quote, The inconveniently situated press box on the MCG ground is a disgrace to the club whose other appointments are irreproachable. Unquote. The problems included numerous iron pillars blocking the press view, a constant stream of people passing in front of them, and even people invading the press box. It was not a suitable situation, far different to the facilities provided to the media these days. Once both teams had entered the ground to the cheers of their supporters, Fred Pompey Elliott won the toss and Carlton would kick with the win towards the southern end of the ground. The early play was fast and intense. Eventually, Jim Marchbank was able to kick the ball to Martin Gotts, who, with a running punt, scored Carlton's first goal, to the roars of delight from the Carlton supporters. Shortly after, the youngster, Jack Pratt, had an opportunity in Essendon's forward line, but was unable to make an impact. Jim Marchbank was having a strong first quarter, and when he took a mark from Bill Payne's kick forward, he was able to bring up Carlton's second goal with a straight drop kick. While Carlton had got away to an early lead, Essendon were not going to wilt under the initial pressure. They went forward on multiple occasions, and then full forward, Harry Farnsworth tried to get the same odds onto the scoreboard with their first goal, but missed and only got a behind. However, the kick-out was intercepted, and Pat O'Shea snapped Essendon's first goal. The quarter-time bell went, and the score was Carlton 2 goals 3 to Essendon, 1 goal, 1 behind. Shortly into the second quarter, the ball was in Carlton's forward line again, and this time it was a blue skipper, Big Pompey Elliott, who cleared the ball from a pack of players with his left foot, putting Carlton another goal in front. But Essendon kept their heads, and after a series of passes down the ground, the skipper Bill Griffiths kicked the ball to Arthur League, who took a good mark and finished off with a goal to keep the Dons in touch. Carlton were quick to respond, and this time it was the wingman, Edward Kennedy, who scored the reply goal for the Blues. It was a fast-moving game, providing a spectacle to the supporters. Carlton had the ball again, moving forward, although under pressure from Essendon defence, 
Martin Gotts was sent sprawling, but the ball was quickly picked up by the West Australian Harvey Kelly, who sent the ball through the goals for Carlton. At half-time, as the spectators and players caught their breaths, the Blues had gained the advantage, 5 goals 4-34, to Essendon 2 goals 4-16. The same odds were not out of the game, but they would need to do more in the second half to push the season decider into an extra game. The third quarter saw a repeat of previous grand finals where the fence gave way under the pressure from the crowd. Supporters moved around the boundary, taking advantage of the additional room, but they kept away from the playing surface. As the third quarter progressed, the game became crowded, with more and more players surrounding the ball. Every attempt to push the ball forward was repelled by defenders from both teams, repelling the attacks. Carlton was not getting any further in front, but Essendon were not making up any of the Blues' lead. Essendon's Harry Farnsworth finally got onto a pass from Dave Smith and scored their third goal. The pressure must have been having an effect on the crowd too. A brawl erupted in the outer near the scoreboard. Some of the crowd jumped the fence to get away from the fight. A young woman fainted in the crush and was lifted over the fence. After she recovered, she was escorted to the grandstand, perhaps without being charged the extra shilling. Poor crowd behaviour is nothing new in the game. After all the excitement in the crowd, with the fights and the collapsing fences, and the pressure-packed play on the ground, the third quarter bell bought some time to rest and review the state of the game. Carlton had only scored one behind in that quarter, and Essendon had made some progress. They were trailing by two straight kicks, Carlton 5 goals 5, to Essendon 3 goals 5. The final quarter saw the Blues continue the tactic they had employed in the second half, to protect the lead rather than attack the game. They kicked the ball to the defensive side of the ground and bottled it up against the boundary line. It seemed that every time a Carlton player had the ball, they would kick it towards the boundary line, even if that meant turning at right angles away from moving the ball forward. It was a disciplined, effective approach to holding on to the lead, but a disappointing way for the game to be played in front of such a large crowd. Essendon did not help themselves either by failing to kick accurately. So the final bell went with Carlton nine points up and Premiers for the third time in a row. A truly dominant effort. The Blues had achieved a grand final win despite only scoring one behind in the second half of the game, and that had been very early in the third quarter. The final scores were Carlton, 5 goals 5, 35, to Essendon, 3 goals 8, 26. The same Olds must have regretted their poor kicking, especially in the second half. Perhaps they could have made some different selections, or perhaps they could, while being disappointed at the loss, reflect on their achievement of having come from last the year before to be a goal and a half behind the dominant club of the era. Essendon only had one player that had been in a final before this game. The Blues had 17. Several weeks earlier, Essendon's captain, Bill Griffiths, had said, If Carlton beats us, they'll have known they've been playing football. As noted by Observer in the Argus, Carlton knew it and so did the public. To demonstrate Carlton's dominance, it's worth looking at what they had achieved over the three seasons they had taken the Premiership back to Princess Park. Playing 58 games for 50 wins and not losing a single final. Follower from The Age told of a conversation he heard on a crowded tram after the game. Said one supporter, How much longer are they, Carlton, going to hold it, I wonder? The reply from his well-informed mate, Until Jack Worrell pegs out. Carlton were premiers again, 
and the celebrations in the northern suburbs were sure to have been long. The leader newspaper reported that the suburb of Carlton is proud, but no longer assertively or noisily so, but with a dignity such as becomes a suburb that has forced admission of its superiority on all rivals by repeated triumphs. It was even suggested that there was a movement to replace the Australian flag with the Carlton football jersey, a move that some of today's Carlton supporters would favour. On the Wednesday after the grand final, the Carlton team was entertained at the Theatre Royale as guests of the famous, or should that be the infamous, John Wren, the the notorious bookmaker, sports promoter and entrepreneur. The show that night was a performance of The Lily of Killarney at the Theatre Royale. Not sure that would be the first choice of today's premiership teams looking for a night out. As in 1907, Carlton travelled to Adelaide to play the South Australian Football Association Premiers, this year West Adelaide, in what was described by the local South Australian press as the Premiership of Australia. West Adelaide were victorious in front of 13,000 spectators. The local team filled in the same 18 that had won the South Australian Premiership, beating Carlton, who had only been able to bring 14 of their Premiership team, and Bill Payne, the Blues halfback, played with an injured knee. But at the end of the day, it was West Adelaide that were Premiers 12 goals 9 to Carlton 7 goals 10. However, before we wrap up the season, there were a few more surprises to come and some allegations were aired about St Kilda, which was a club that had already been at the centre of some sensational accusations earlier in the year. Back in Melbourne, there were serious issues being addressed by the VFL's Permit Committee who were holding an investigation of the umpiring of the semi-final between Carlton and St Kilda. The investigation was at the request of St Kilda, who had put in a formal complaint about field umpire Coombs. While the complaint was eventually dismissed, there were allegations that two of St Kilda's players were under the influence of liquor in the second half of the game. Curiously, Jack Worrell's position as Carlton Secretary and as Delegate to the League got him a seat onto the permit committee investigating this complaint, even though he had been Carlton's coach in the game under investigation. Conflict of interest seems to have been a little bit more elastic in 1908. Mr Jones from St Kilda denied that the players were affected. The only drink had been a bottle of whisky that all 18 players shared at half-time. It was a bitter cold and rainy day, if you remember. The complaint against the umpire was dismissed, and the allegations of liquor will be further investigated. But, given the conflicting statements from a number of witnesses, a later committee meeting found the charges against the St Kilda players entirely unfounded. The final note for 1908 comes from a meeting of the Australasian Football Council that met in the rooms of the VFL in December. There was a proposal to alter Rule 14 to allow controlling bodies to appoint two field umpires, if considered appropriate. This was rejected. The VFL would finally appoint two field umpires in 1976, nearly 70 years after this initial attempt to allow the option. So that was season 1908. Carlton were premiers for the third time in a row. Under Jack Worrell, they had become the dominant club of the VFL's 11-year history, and they deserved to be counted in any comparison of great teams across the ages. Essendon had jumped from last to second on the ladder in one season, and the league now had 10 clubs with the addition of Richmond and University. The season had seen scandals related to gambling, and the tension about the supposed amateur status of the players still simmered. 
Join me next time when we explore the 13th season in 1909. Can Carlton make it four in a row? Can St Kilda move beyond third? And will Essendon maintain their improved standing? If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks and I hope you join me next time.